on. I feel like I haven't talked to you in seven months. Yeah, it's uh, it has been a long, long time for sure. Um, I switched jobs. Um, that was a pretty big change. Um, left my current employer on good terms. Found a really cool new opportunity working with some great people. And um, it's totally atypical, like, of the position that I would normally look for. And uh, I went for it, and I'm really enjoying it so far. Nice. Uh, what's what's different about it from the your previous one? Normally, I'm in kind of like a, a very rural setting. You know, you don't drive into the city. You don't have to deal with public parking or all that kind of stuff. And I'm at small shops. Um, for the most part. And this is, you know, downtown, you know, I drive into the city in rush hour every morning and home. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, a ton of really great engineers, which is something I've been in, you know, once or twice before, but I'm usually on a smaller team. And uh, yeah, this is a great company. Um, they do disc profiles, which is basically like talks about your preferences, um, what you feel comfortable with, what stresses you out. And, um, you know, they talk about the compatibility of those different types of people. And, you know, they put you on a team and it's a self-organizing team, um, very agile in nature. And, um, yeah, you just get work done. You, you just kind of like they hand you your computer and it's like, off you go. And, um, yeah, uh, really enjoying it you know the the people that i work with are all real super sharp people um a lot of them are linux unix guys and everyone i talk to you know it's uh it's kind of refreshing to have that level of one professionalism and two um just working skills they're all good at what they do nice so are you doing go or what is it uh usually it is a python shop and we have I guess two big applications. One of them is like a, a React JavaScript ap- application, and the other is a big um, Python application with like you know kid templates and some jQuery and a whole bunch of other stuff. Hmm. Yeah, no go. But they did ask me to um, for my Go expertise, and I don't know if this was like me self advertising. Um, yeah, they have an in beginning meeting. And uh, one of the meetings, somebody turned around and said, hey, we want to do a health check on a particular Kubernetes instance. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, you know, it's written in Go and we'd like to use that. And, um, you know, they were like trying to get feedback, but they looked directly at me when when they said that. (laughs) And so uh, there was a presentation on, um, you know, particular Python web framework that week and I you know, the next week I gave a presentation on like a Go primer and I talked about all the, you know, things that set Go apart from other languages and testing and code coverage and interfaces and, um, yeah, just a whole bunch of stuff. And people, there was no hatred. There was a lot of, uh, engagement from what I saw, people nodding their heads and, you know, kind of supportive, like the feedback that I got was good. So even though that we're writing Python and it will continue to be a Python shop. Um, you know, the, the spirit of go has been conveyed in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that sounds like a big change for you. And, uh, you have 
another big change coming? Yeah, I got a, a baby due um, a couple days ago, and uh, we're still waiting for him to make his entrance. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's that's going to be exciting. It's, I don't know, it's kind of overwhelming because, you know, normally I was like 25 minutes from home and I could just go home and the hospital was, you know, 15 minutes away. Yeah. Now I'm like... If I can get through traffic, it's only 45 minutes to get home, and then it's like another 45 minutes to the hospital. Yeah. So, yeah, very exciting times. Um, my boys are just had their birthdays. We went out camping, and, uh, yeah, we've been doing quite a bit of camping. We took my nephew out and the boys, and we all had a blast and, you know, just kind of made good memories and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they're anxiously awaiting our next trip. So yeah, the, the family is growing in on many levels, I guess right now. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What about you? What's been going on with you? Uh, nothing really, nothing on the scale of a new job or child on the way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's been what, seven months since our last show. So I guess there's some things, uh, that happened in the world of garbage technology. Yeah, there sure has been. And also too, like our listeners, uh, I guess they were kind of wondering where we went. Uh, yeah. I've been getting a lot of messages on Twitter asking if our show is done for good or if we're coming back. Yeah. It was not uh, intentional to take a gap this big. Yeah. And then while we were trying to schedule the next upcoming episode or this episode, we had some a couple more delays just because of confusion. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, where should we start with uh, things to chat about? Um, I don't know. So there's been a million and one things happening in OpenBSD. That seems to be where we go to first. Yeah, there's been a... Uh... A new release since we were last on 6.1 has been released. Yep. Um, I upgraded a couple servers to it. Uh, actually, the two pushover servers um, the other day. And because uh, I, I really wanted to get on the syspatch thing mm -hmm. because I'm really bad about keeping my servers up to date if, the, if there's no like relevant security uh, bugs that I need to patch. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, a bunch of servers out there and some of them are like on five, eight, five, nine, stuff like that. So now that they're these two important ones anyway are on six one, um, using syspatches make th making things a lot easier. That's awesome. How does uh syspatch work? Uh you just type syspatch and that's it. That's awesome. It just downloads the stuff that you need and well it I mean it downloads all of the updates that you haven't applied yet and then uh like moves your kernel out of the way and uh, puts the new one in place and then does like backups of the files that it uh, upgraded in case you need to roll, roll back an update. Um, something I ran into, I guess I sh is worth mentioning is uh, if you, if your root partition is kind mm -hmm. of small, like only like a hundred or 150 megs, uh, you will probably run out of disk space applying all of the current, 6.1 syspatches because um, it what it seems to be doing is downloading uh, the the syspatch but then if it's for a kernel 
change. Uh, it downloads the multi, uh, the MP kernel and the SP kernel, and then okay. puts them both in the root directory. And then it tries, it has to do that for each update, and then it makes a backup of your current kernel. So you'll have three kernels sitting there, and the kernels are kind of big. Um, yeah. So what I would have to do, like I would apply one, and then it would try to download the other one, and then it would just error out saying that you don't have enough disk space on the root partition. So when it does that, you just you can delete the backup kernel that it made. You can delete, um, well, actually, so you can't delete the bsd.sp file because it'll like error out the next time it tries to apply the patch because it's trying to patch that file and that file isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has actually been fixed in current, but for six one, you're going to have to keep that bsd.sp file there. And if you don't have it, just copy your BSD kernel to BSD.sp so it can patch it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so hopefully all those little bugs will get uh, ironed out in the, in the future. Yeah, is this supposed to be something that you can run from like a, a scheduled task? So there's like a dash C option, which is supposed to be run from like cron, and that'll just spit out a list of if there's any new patches that you need to apply. Um, but you could, I guess, in theory, just run syspatch um, from cron and then let it uh, patch things. But I think for most users, you're either going to need to reboot to to uh, boot to the new kernel, or you're going to restart our daemon that needs to be restarted. Um, so those things are not going to happen automatically. Yeah, I see that. I was just looking at the man page. It looks like uh, brand new for 6.1 and Antoine, I don't know if you say Jakuto. Yeah. Uh, wrote this, so that's very cool. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people had commented that they, it was like intimidating to, you know, get patches and patch things by hand, mm-hmm. and you know, why aren't there binary upgrades? I think this is definitely a better option. Yeah, yeah. So if you're not at six one, it's worth uh, going to six one just so you can use syspatch and make things a little bit easier on yourself. Yeah, very cool stuff. So aside from upgrades, um, 6.1 also has a whole bunch of other um, interesting changes in it, right? With the ARM stuff now, too, we've got, or actually, I don't know if the 64-bit ARM stuff made 6.1, did it? It was shortly thereafter. No, it's in there. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the timing is a blur when you're not paying close attention. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, um... Dale Ron has been working on OpenBSD again. Patrick has been working on uh, ARM stuff, and Mark Ketnis has been working on ARM stuff. And um, 64-bit, and I think there's some SMP stuff being thrown into the mix now with that as well. And I don't know how much of that is like in the tree versus diffs floating around, and how much of the diff. Um, is available to the general public versus, you know, just a select group of people. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm having trouble keeping track of all that, but there is SMP work for ARM, um, taking place and a whole slew of PMAP bugs have been ironed out in that regard. And I guess ARM is starting to build ports and packages on a regular basis now. Um, which is awesome. Yeah. So I think uh, a lot of things are being ironed out in that front, and that is exciting stuff. Yeah, it seems like every uh, every other day there's a new driver for some random ARM thing on some random ARM board that yeah. uh, Mark probably wrote. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's cranking out a ton of stuff. 
Yeah, that makes me kind of selfishly upset because <laughs> he's focusing on ARM because he likes it, but he won't do the uh, update to the Intel DRM code. And he's yeah. like the only one that knows the guts of all that stuff and how to properly port all of the new Linux code. So um, we're still stuck on uh, pre-Skylake support. So that sucks. Yeah, I think the Skylake stuff is due now. I mean, we've had enough like generations and revisions of chips now that we should just we should just start supporting it. I mean, I don't I don't know the how the OpenBSD Foundation and the OpenBSD project kind of view that I don't know new development, but you know, I know that in the past they've provided funding towards things like that and I would like to see it happen here as well. It'd be awesome. I think we would all benefit from it. Yeah, I was actually talking to Theo about this the other day, um, and it basically just comes down to Mark doesn't really have the time or desire to work on it, mm-hmm. um, but there is funding there for uh, someone to do it from the foundation, because okay. it is a pretty critical thing that uh, you need for a lot of components. I mean, I was just complaining about it the other day. Uh, if you don't have Intel DRM support on a newer machine, you don't get accelerated X, which means that your X is pretty slow, but uh, you also can't suspend and resume on a laptop because when you resume, there's nothing there to repost the video, so Hmm. your screen won't turn back on, and then you can't, um, well, at least on the laptop that I have, it has an NVMe SSD, and you can't hibernate with NVMe, so uh, there's that, and then you can't adjust the gamma on the screen with the like EFI FB stuff. Yeah. Um, which means that you can't run a tool like Redshift to uh like make your screen less blue at night. Yep. Um, which at least for me, like I have that on my phone and my Mac and OpenBSD machines. Um and just like trying to write code at night when that screen is like bright and blue and stuff. Yep. Uh it's just unbearable. Uh, and that's the other thing is you can't adjust the screen brightness without the DRM code unless you use like the weird hack thing that I ported. Yeah, I'm using your your hack right now on my Chromebook because it's still got uh, was it Simple FB on that one? Yeah. Or no, that one's uh, EFI FB, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, going back to the NVMe stuff, you were working on that, right? You had a diff that you posted to uh, fix an off by one error, right? Yeah, I ran into this uh, on a new laptop that I've been playing with recently, which is the, uh, I never know how to pronounce it. I think it's Xiaomi or Xiaomi, X-I-A-O-M-I is the company. They make like phones and stuff. They're basically like the Apple of China. Um, But they have this 12 and a half inch uh, screen laptop, um, the Xiaomi Mi Air. Uh, I have a write-up on my website. I'll put in the show notes, but um it comes with a SATA drive a SATA SSD but they have it comes with a slot an open slot on the motherboard to plug in a PCIe NVMe drive um which is pretty rare especially on a like uh the machine is a, a fanless like core M mm-hmm. processor so it's like not high end at all i got that i mean i bought the whole machine shipped to me for like 475 bucks or something like that yeah. Um, so I just bought a NVMe SSD and put it in there instead. Um, and open and I kept running into problems 
trying to boot it once I switched to the new SSD and a uh, longer story short, uh, it turned out to be a bug in our NVMe driver, which has since been fixed. That's awesome. Yeah. How did you track that down? It was a lot of debugging, uh, basically like booting Linux, trying to run other partition utilities through Linux, installing windows, uh, installing Linux, um, basically just going back and forth. And then I realized that the, uh, when you would partition the drive in OpenBSD, it would, um, when you would then look at the partition, the GPT partition table in any other utility on another operating system, it would basically say that the partition table was bad or corrupt. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the, because of the one-off bug in our NVMe driver, it was telling the SCSI layer that the drive had one more sector than it actually did. So when uh, the FDisk utility would try and write a GPT table to the entire disk, it would make the table and then put the backup at the last sector, which was actually like off the end of the disk. I don't even know where how it was writing to that, but um, <laughs> it was basically just writing it nowhere. And then so the other, you know, if you boot into Linux, it would see the table and then say like that there's no backup uh, partition table and that the sector count in the um, table was incorrect. And then just going back and forth, I realized that the sector counts were uh, off when you would boot OpenBSD versus when you would boot Linux. Um, and it's kind of weird because like I had it on the drive and then I could boot to it with OpenBSD and the, the EFI uh, bootloader would come up and then it would boot the kernel. But then as soon as you booted the kernel, I couldn't find the root uh, or it couldn't find the soft raid disk because uh, the bootloader is going off of what EFI is exporting as far as how many uh, sectors are in the drive. Mm -hmm. But then once you actually boot the kernel and then the NVMe driver takes over, it's reporting a different number of sectors. And then um, uh, the kernel was basically not seeing the disk as a GPT because the protective MBR partition table was incorrect because of the off by one bug and it's turtles all the way down from there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's really cool to hear how, uh, how you, uh, figured that all out. It seems like a lot of work. Yeah. And so basically it's fixed now, but if you have run or if you've been using, uh, open BSD on a NVMe machine, you probably have an invalid partition table. Mm -hmm. And so if you boot current or I guess by uh, the next by 6.2 when we release it it's not going to be able to boot your root disk um, so you're going to have to kind of back up your data boot to a snapshot repartition copy all your data back over which sucks but it's there's really it's really the only way to do it properly and then luckily uh, nvme is not really that common yet so hopefully yeah. it hasn't affected too many people but well, awesome. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, I don't know. It sounds like you got your hands on some relatively inexpensive hardware. So NVMe will be in people's hands soon enough. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Actually, um, I started to run into a small boot block problem myself on my APU too. I was, uh, I noticed that when I mistyped the passphrase, um, to decrypt the disk that it wouldn't read my boot.conf and the, and the machine wouldn't boot. And, uh, so I started to look into the, 
the code for boot a little bit just to see what it was doing. And basically it tries to read the config file, the boot.conf one time. Mm-hmm. And if it can't read it, it assumes that it isn't there. Um, it, but in the case of like, um, you know, soft raid crypto discipline or something like that, um, if you type your password wrong uh, and it couldn't read the, the config, well, that's a little bit different case. So uh, it gets into a loop and it basically looks to see um, looks to see the status, like if you're at a prompt or not, and then it just kind of, you know, keeps iterating over that. And I, and I can't, I haven't really decided like what the proper fix is. Do I try and reread the file? If um, soft rate is configured, do I have a read conf that uh, returns different status codes? Um, one, because like, can I, I think it returns negative one now. Like I couldn't find the file, couldn't read the file. And I want to understand, like, can I detect if I had a permission failure versus, like, it doesn't exist and return back a different status code and then look for that? Or um, do I get in this while loop and try and read the config file, you know, if after they've decom- um, typed in their passphrase correctly? Um, but, yeah, every once in a while I'll type in the passphrase wrong when I'm booting my APU, too, and it can't read the boot config, and, and it behaves poorly because it doesn't redirect everything the way it needs to. Yeah. Um, I was actually, yeah, I was looking at that code recently um, for something else I wanted to implement. And it's kind of weird that the, uh, the way that like the passphrase prompt comes up when you first boot is actually just a side effect of it trying to read boot.conf automatically. Yep. And because it needs to read it off of an encrypted disk, it then prompts you for that password. Yep. Yeah. I was actually trying to implement something where uh, you could do you could have two soft raid partitions on a single disk, and then it would ask you for a password once, and then it would try to decrypt both uh, either of them with that same passphrase. The idea being that if you booted the laptop and needed to do like a uh, a duress password, that it would boot like your hidden uh, soft raid crypto mm-hmm. disk that has like nothing in it. But it wouldn't like make it obvious that it was booting uh, one versus the other. It just would boot whatever one matched your password. Right. But yeah. Yeah, I spent a little bit of time in there, and I went to go start testing the changes, and it um, I couldn't get VMM fired up the way I wanted to. Um, and by the time I did get it working, I'd lost uh, my time window to be able to work on testing it. So. It kind of sat dormant for a little bit. <laughs> Did I see that you got uh, your MMC stuff working? No, it's not working. Um, I I was asking Patrick, I said, hey, can you make this work? I can't make this work. And so he and I have been kind of uh, testing some things out, trying out some theories. And we enabled debugging on it last night and, um, you know, printed out a whole bunch of stuff and it's essentially the same place it, it always has been. I did a couple uh, changes to the PCI devs and that felt satisfying. But after that, it was just um, frustrating. I, I, you know, we tried um, changing the voltage or setting the voltage by um, like manually setting it versus having it probe the voltage to see if we got any different results. And it didn't yield any different results. And let me see in the D message output over here, I've got like information. Let's see what it says here. 
like reading the OCR and what the OCRs look like. Debug. Yeah, so in the D message, SDHC initializes everything fine, finds the device, and then uh, sets the voltage and let's see, setting voltage based on caps. SDMMC is probed. Um, let's see what else happens here. It, it looks to see like what type of um, device it is. Goes to probe it as, um, what is it probe it as first? Something it tries to attaches one thing and it fails and then it tries to attach it as an IO device and it says, Oh yeah, I'm an IO device, but it still has issues. I don't know what the issues are, but, um, in my conversations with Patrick, the Linux quirks, uh, I think there's like, I can't see them right now. Um, but I think there's like four or five different things that, uh, Linux considers a quirk in there. And, um, I think a couple of them we handle already. Like I think they're built into the way our uh, our driver probes and sets things up. Uh, but there's a couple that we don't handle at all. And I think in order to um, in order to make any kind of progress, we have to get further than where we're at now, um, even to start addressing the quirks that are in the Linux driver. So right now, um, I think we're trying to read the uh, OCR and failing, and I think we need to be able to do that before we can even start to worry about the quirks and some other stuff. So I might be wrong on that, but that's what it, that's what I remember. Hmm. Things gonna be the death of you. <sighs> no, I'm I'm gonna give up. I'm gonna <laughs> I'll wait for Mark to figure it out. And actually, um, doesn't the Intel NUC have that? The NUC. Um, because when I was researching the Intel 100 series uh, MMC, I was like, "Oh, the the NUC has it. NUC has it. Whatever that thing's called." Yeah. And um, I looked at the D message, and I don't see the same error that I'm getting in here, where it says SDMMC can't enable card. So I don't know. Maybe there's some different hardware revisions out there. I know for my particular one, it's revision 21 or something like that. So yeah, we're trying to make progress on it, but we're not making, uh, we're not getting anywhere with it so far. And, you know, I feel bad asking Patrick for help because he doesn't have anything with that hardware. So it's really yeah. hard for him to look at the driver and figure anything out. So yeah. Yep. Debugging, uh, hardware drivers is never fun. <laughs> not at all. And, and from what I gather, MMC stuff is just a pain in the butt, like all across the board. Yeah. Um, Mark did something. I want to say Mark did something, another MMC device on an ARM board. And he used a similar type framework as, you know, Linux does with their quirks. Hey, do you have this thing set? Yes. Do this weird quirk. Right. And um, I think people kind of asked him, you know, what do you think about doing stuff like this? This is, you know, kind of like how Linux does it. And he said, yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, this is just kind of how we're going to have to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a very popular board. We want to support it, you know, short from building some huge framework. I think that's probably about our only option. So aside from kernel hacking, um, there has been some other stuff in OpenBSD. Tmux turned 
10 years old. Mm-hmm. That's hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird that that's like an open BSD project because so many people use it that, uh, probably don't even know that it's kind of under the open BSD umbrella. Lots of yeah. Linux users use it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, Nick Marriott wrote that. Jeez, it, it, I don't know. Like I'm having trouble, like thinking back to when, you know, we just kind of hung out on IRC and he's like, I don't like screen. I'm going to replace, like write a replacement. And then, <laughs> you know, he's like, what do you guys think of this? And I remember a handful of us who are still on IRC, um, you know, trying it, trying it out and we loved it. And we thought, man, this is so much better. The, the code is so clean and we all were using screen in some capacity and, uh, you know, he, he produced something that was useful, got it out to the masses. And then all of a sudden, like we were talking about importing it into the base of OpenBSD, And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Like, (laughs) I don't think I'd been around for anything significant being imported into the base like that. And, and then there he was. And I think it was maybe a couple years later, he got invited to a hackathon and I got to hang out with him and, you know, have lunch with him and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, now it is like what, 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Time flies. Yeah, sure does. So did we have a clang in base last time we recorded a podcast? Uh, I don't know. I think, I think we might have, cause I think we talked about the big import, but Oh yeah, because it happened at the hackathon, and that was after our, we recorded the show after the hackathon. Yeah, in October. Yeah. All right, so that's old news. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh yeah. So I was doing all the stuff with the Chromebook Pixel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imported all those drivers. They're all in uh, six point one. That's the ambient light sensor device. The uh, frame buffer stuff i think and the uh what else oh that the touchpad and touchscreen driver and then you know because everything kind of worked i got bored of that machine as i am wont to do so i sold it because they don't make those anymore and you can sell them on ebay for like the same price that you bought them for new like a year ago oh yeah so i got rid of that and then i was back to a uh a macbook air and uh, I don't know if I talked about it on any of the previous shows, but I was trying to make a hardware card that would go into the like proprietary uh, slot on the motherboard on MacBooks that could basically replace the Broadcom wireless card with mm-hmm. something that is supported in OpenBSD, like an Intel card. Uh, and so I've had this idea forever, and I kept asking people that like actually know how to design like circuit boards and stuff to help me with it. And no one actually did. Um, and then I finally found, it was just one of those websites where you can like pay, I think it was like fiverr.com or something like that. Like you can just post, like you'll do something for $5. And there's a bunch of people on there that will do like a circuit, circuit board, like design one for you, not for five bucks, but maybe for like, I don't know, 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. So I sketched all the stuff out. I um, I figured out. I traced all the like connections that needed to go from like the proprietary socket on the motherboard to like a 
M.2 socket and figure out which pins map to which. So I drew all this out in a diagram and I gave it to the guy and he did up the uh, like the actual diagram or mm-hmm. what's the like the schematic. Yeah, the schematic. And so he made all this stuff and uh, gave it to me and um, I got the boards printed from a like PCB printing place in China yeah. that you just upload your um, Gerber files to and then they print out the boards. And so I got one back or I got, I think I had ordered like five or 10 as a minimum. So I got them and they weren't like, they weren't exact as because of my errors as far as uh, measuring stuff and all that. Um, So I went and downloaded Eagle, Eagle PCB, which is like a common program to manipulate these schematic files and stuff. And I learned how to uh, do all this stuff (laughs) over the course of, like a month or so. Oh man. Best five bucks you ever spent. Yeah. So I like (laughs) made a revision two of it and then got that printed and it was, you know, it fits perfectly in the slot. All the pins are lined up and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was trying to solder the, uh, you say solder, don't you? I say solder. Yeah. Yeah, Some Europeans picked on me and I was like, Oh, I'll say solder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was trying to figure, because, you know, if you ever, if you've ever seen like an M.2, uh, header, the pins are like ridiculously small and there's like 70 of them. Um, and I'm like, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to, to solder this on. Uh, you know, this is like something you need a machine to do. So then I was like learning about all that stuff and watching YouTube videos and how to do this properly and all my attempts failed. And so I had to like order more M.2 headers because I had ruined the ones that I got and then all this stuff. And then uh, I finally figured out that like you need to use a hot air machine to do this mm-hmm. um, because nice. you can't like you can't do this manually, basically. So I got that and then I got kind of bored of this project because um, at one point. I had plugged the card into the socket without anything soldered onto it yet. Uh-huh. And it was not aligned properly and it shorted out the motherboard. Uh-huh. Um, and it actually like there's a tiny fuse on the motherboard that is in between it, it like it connects to the, basically the backlight of the screen. Uh-huh. And so a common problem with the MacBooks is like, if you spill water on it, you'll be able to, the machine will boot, but you'll have no backlight on the screen. And so if you like shine a flashlight on it, you can actually see it. The screen works. There's just no backlight. So like any of those, the common like Mac repair places, that's like a huge issue that they run into is somebody spilled water on it and they just need to replace this fuse. Mm. Well, it's, you know, the fuse is like ridiculously tiny and it's proprietary and you gotta, you know, order one and everything. And so, you know, I was, Trying, still trying to figure out all the soldering stuff. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't want to screw up this board even more and end up breaking the board like so it won't even boot at all. So I just shipped it off to one of those Mac repair places and they replaced the fuse and everything. Um, and, you know, by that time, I had, it cost a few hundred dollars to get that fuse replaced. And, you know, between all the time that I had been spending trying to learn all this stuff and buying all this stupid equipment, like the hot air machine and everything. Mm-hmm. I was basically just like, this is dumb. Why am I trying to do this for, to run OpenBSD on a MacBook air, which is this really old machine by now. It has this terrible screen. It's a, you know, the 1366 by 768 resolution. It's right. a TN screen. It's not even IPS. 
Uh, terrible color. Just, you know, it's not even that great of a machine. It was like many years ago when I first had this idea. But by now I've, you know, I've gotten new machines that are much better and everything. And anyway, so I've kind of just put this project on hold. Um, and I sold that MacBook anyway. So <laughs> that's why I have this show me laptop now. Yeah. Now that's your daily driver now. Is that the thing you're going to? Well, so I was, uh, I got a new MacBook Pro since we last recorded too. So like I had to go download all this stuff to record this podcast. Um, and so I've just kind of been, uh, not as, uh, I haven't been really running OpenBSD much on a daily basis because mm-hmm. the new machines that I've been playing with are not, uh, they're all like Skylake or KB Lake. Yeah. So there's no Intel DRM and because of all the stuff I already mentioned, uh, it's just kind of been sapping my, uh, desire to work on stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. You got a new, new computer. You had to do ACPI stuff, I'm sure. Right. Oh yeah. So the, for the show me machine, I had to, um, well actually, so while I had the MacBook air, I got suspend and resume working on it on OpenBSD, and I wrote a new ACPI driver for the smart battery subsystem. Um, and hmm. I did that all so long ago, I forgot, but uh, that stuff was all in 6.1. Nice. Um, so basically, our ACPI stack pretends that it is running uh, Darwin because the, AC, the DSDT on the MacBook Air does completely different stuff when it's running on Darwin versus when it's running on anything else. And yeah. because by default, OpenBSD and Linux uh, pretend to be running Windows, um, it does different stuff. And so Suspend and Resume wasn't working on there. And so I basically changed, I put in a hack to our ACPI systems that when it's running on a Mac, it emulates that it's, it tells it that it's running on Darwin. Mm-hmm. And then when you do that, the normal ACPI bat driver doesn't attach anymore. Um because it wants this ACPI smart battery subsystem to take over because obviously Mac OS has support for that new or fancy smart battery thing. Yeah, that makes sense. So I had to write a a driver for OpenBSD to to support that. So that's in there now. And then I did all that, and then I I sold that machine, and I don't care about it anymore. (laughs) So on the the ShowMe machine, um, I... I'm trying to get my DWIIC stuff working on it because the touchpad attaches over I2C. And I got all that stuff working, which required uh, a bunch of new code because the DWIIC controller is, it shows up through PCI instead of mm. ACPI. So I did that. And then, but now we need a new GPIO driver that I have to write so that interrupts <laughs> work because, like, when you touch the touchpad, it's not actually signaling anything because yeah. that GPIO uh, interrupt is not hooked up yet. Oh, uh, yeah. So once that is hooked up, I don't think that I actually need to make any more changes. It'll just work. Uh, that's where I'm at now. Sounds like a lot of work. So you mentioned uh, buying a MacBook Pro. And uh, like where I work now, we have MacBook Pros. They ask you, like, do you want a Lenovo or do you want a MacBook Pro? And a, and a bulk of the developers go with the MacBook Pro, and that's what I chose as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, a couple people have come in, and they're like, I want to run Linux on my Lenovo. And, you know, they know their way around their stuff. Um, 
But yeah, there's a couple things that always, always get me with the MacBook Pro. The the home and end and the page up, page down. Um, you know, I you can hit buttons and kind of do it, but it for whatever reason, I always have my Ergo Docs plugged into it uh, when I'm doing code because I just... I always struggle with that. I'm like, okay, yeah, I got to learn the shortcuts in the editor. But when I'm when I'm not in the editor, it's it's even more painful. Um, I, I never realized how particular I am about a like a keyboard. Um, I don't know if it was like a year or so ago. You were mentioning that the the key press, you know, in the new MacBook Pros is like really shallow, and I was like, oh yeah, I wonder how that would you know feel for me. And when I go like between the Ergo Docs. And then I have my computer, like I unplug the keyboard and I go to a meeting or something Mm -hmm. that shallow key press drives me crazy. I come home and like the Chromebooks even have a taller uh, key press and yeah, it, it just drives me up a wall. All those, all those little things like, you know, you wouldn't think that the aesthetic and that kind of stuff would, would mean so much, but for whatever reason, it's like, I don't know, something that you interface with so heavily, it's just, you know, yeah, has to be second nature, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm the opposite way. I'm so used to the MacBook keyboard as far as how page up and page down and home and end are, where you have mm-hmm. to hold down function and do the arrow keys. Yep. That when I switch to something else, like one of these new uh, PC keyboards, it's all confusing for me. <laughs> yeah. I assume with the shallow keys that you're on the 2017 MacBook Pro. Yeah, the 2017, and it has the escape key. Um you know, the physical key versus the virtual key and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's, I wrote this up on my website, but I I bought the new one and I had so many complaints because of the keyboard that I ended up uh, returning it and then buying a brand new 2016 model that they still sell. And the new, uh, the upcoming WWDC conference that's in like a month, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, they're expected to come out with some uh, laptop changes and a lot of people are thinking that they're going to do something about the keyboard because they've had so many complaints about it yeah that'd be nice to see yeah well that's uh exciting stuff so we've talked about a ton of drivers we tried to not talk about drivers and we talked about drivers more but uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah what else uh what else is there to cover uh i guess not anything to do with OpenBSD. um i was I backed the game on Kickstarter called Thimbleweed Park. Have you okay. heard of this? No, never heard of it. Uh, so it's basically like the, it's one of those like um, point and click like text adventure games mm-hmm. um, in the style of like Maniac Mansion or uh, Leisure Suit Larry. I think Leisure Suit Larry was that way. But um, so it was a new game being made by some guys that had made many of those older games back in the day. And so they got a whole bunch of money from in, through their Kickstarter campaign to make this game, and it finally came out. Um, and so I downloaded it and played it and put like I don't know seventeen hours into it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's a really fun game um, if you like that kind of thing. Uh, so you should uh, download it and play it if you like uh, point and click adventure games. Nice, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I haven't had much time for games lately, unfortunately. I showed somebody ATC in OpenBSD, and that was about it. What is ATC? The air traffic controller game. I have not heard of that. Yeah, you um, 
you're basically you have a little text grid and um, planes come in and you have to land them like it'll give you a destination where they have to go and you have to turn them and change the altitude and then land them at the airport and then other planes will be at the airport and you have to um, you have to make them take off and then climb to a certain altitude they have to enter the grid at one altitude and they have to leave the grid at another altitude and you have to make sure that they don't hit and all that kind of stuff it's very fun <laughs> is it in user games or is it a port no user games yeah it's in oh, base wow. <laughs> interesting <laughs> yeah, let me see i'll pull it up real quick here man atc yep it's it's uh yeah just uh, a textual air traffic controller game Huh. And it gives you all like there's like keyboard shortcuts that you have to know or keys that you have to know to press to do all that kind of stuff. I don't know why, but I find like there were times when I would play it for like an hour straight and just land planes. And uh, <laughs> of course, like, you know, they're they're more frequent and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, something to do while your kernels compiling. Yeah, only kernels don't take an hour to compile at all. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a, a make build. How about that? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, make world or something. Um, yeah. So what else do we have to talk about? I'm sure there's like a hundred things that we, we forgot about, but maybe that'll make for a nice like follow-up episode. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you're listening to this, thanks for uh, continuing to have our feed in your podcast app that hasn't updated in seven months but if you have ideas for uh what you want us to talk about let us know yeah honestly we have let you know some good news go by just completely off the radar you know yeah i think at this point it's like people probably won't even remember some of it yeah for sure that's a bummer uh but anywho that's it for this episode. If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, how can people reach you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at NoMercyMod, K-N-O-W. And you can find me on Google Plus writing articles that I forget that I wrote three years later. <laughs> uh, I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. And then the garbage sound will play. So now we can do the after show like we used to do. Right, where we just talk about the same stuff anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, I got a new truck. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I had problems with the truck that I bought like six months ago. And uh, I got them fixed. And then, you know, I looked at another truck with no intention of buying a new truck. And... Um, you know, I, I wound up going in there for like one car, you know, we had to get a bigger car cause we have three kids now, or we will have three kids very shortly. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we, we traded in the one car and, you know, I was like, all right, well, if it makes sense to do, you know, I may as well do the truck at the same time. And, uh, I'm really glad that I did, man. At the, uh, yeah, the problem that I had was the brakes were coming on while I was driving down the highway at 65 miles an hour. And, uh, I was in traffic and they were, I, I mean, I didn't look down at the dash, but they were on hard enough that, you know, the truck downshifted into, you know, second gear or whatever it was. And wow. 
I'm trying to get over. And by the time I got pulled over, they were all smoking and completely black and purple. And I was like, oh, no, the truck's going to catch on fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I got it fixed. But I'm, I have a different truck now. I bought a Tundra and uh, really, really, really nice truck. It's just a completely different league from the, uh, from the other one that I had. And uh, we've towed with it a couple times now, and it just tows like a champ. And I commute with it to work. And uh, it drives great. Yeah, I don't have any trouble with it. So, the, the, uh, How's the gas mileage having to commute to work with it? Yeah, I mean, not ideal. <laughs> um, Did you get rid of your Subaru? Yeah, I traded in the Subaru. Um, I was getting like 33 miles to the gallon on the Subaru. And the truck combined, you know, highway, city, stop and go in traffic is like almost 19 so it's a pretty big hit. Yeah. But I mean, I I can't really justify having three cars in the driveway, one to commute with and one to tow the camper with and, you know, have yeah. a payment on two of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then the insurance and the gas and all that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. And then uh, the Airstream renovation is in full swing now. Um, redesigned the frame underneath it uh, using a different axle system and I ordered a set of axles and brakes and tires and I mocked up um, how that was going to work and I did a bunch of calculations and like the numbers weren't adding up and I'm like why doesn't this add up like I don't know what the deal is and then I found out that the measurements that I were taking I made an assumption that it was a two inch wide beam running front to back and it was a inch and three quarters and so as soon as i uh, changed the numbers to reflect that everything tied out and i was like good and now i'm uh, getting a, a second and third quote on steel and uh that should be here within a week or so and then uh yeah the frame will be coming together and pretty soon after that we'll be getting the uh i mean the shell of the Airstream will come up off the old one. Mm-hmm. We'll set it down on top of the new one. Probably, it's probably two or three weekends worth of work uh, from the time the frame is done till the shell comes off and then goes on onto the new frame. Are you doing all the welding? No, uh, my neighbor is a welder by trade, mm. so it's probably better. You know, yeah, I <laughs> was like How trusting much would your it- family's safety to it. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean a small trailer. Okay. You know, it's kind of like a 1500 pound trailer, you know? Okay. No big deal. But yeah, this is several tons of weight going down the road. So, um, he is, a he's chassis certified and all this kind of stuff. So he can, you know, he can repair chassis. He can fabricate chassis. He can, uh, put VINs on chassis and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> might, might need to bleep that out. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, if you if you build a, a chassis from scratch and you are chassis certified, you can you can put a VIN on it and sell it as a legitimate like roadworthy vehicle. Oh really? I thought yeah. like kit cars they don't have VINs. Um, I don't know about kit cars. I know that with trailers though, you basically get a weight slip and they mm-hmm. ask you 
you know, for a VIN number, if you're chassis certified, you can, you can put VINs and stuff on a, on a trailer that you fabricate and sell it with a VIN legally. Uh, if, if you build them from scratch, you just say it's homemade and you take it to the weigh station and they weigh it and they say, this is how much it weighs. Yeah. And then they give you a, a registration and say it's homemade. There's no VIN on it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that's about all. But I will tell you that I, I use Docker in my day job now. Oh, yeah? And, uh, yeah, like, I when I first started there, they were like, hey, go ahead and uh, read the Confluence article, and you can get the application up and running. And I started, like, doing the 45 steps, and they're like, no, 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 no. You need to uh, you need to read the other documentation for Dockerizing the container, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And uh, so, Docker, I, I am by no means an expert on this, but using it on day-to-day use, I, I will say that I have to restart it once a day, at least a few times a week. Usually, um, it just gets in a weird state, mm-hmm. and they have this concept of one process per container. So if you want to go into into a container and you like want to do something else, like run a test, when you deploy these containers, you have one container running your application and one container running your tests um, with the exact same code base. Um, that was kind of strange for me to, to wrap my head around, but it's really not an earth-shattering or difficult thing to do. And then uh, the other thing that's kind of hard is like debugging. Like if, you know, like with with Java or .NET, you would tie your application into your IDE and you'd run it from there. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, step through things, set breakpoints and all that kind of stuff. And folks use PyCharm um, at work and they they do that kind of thing. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that is said often is, you know, I wish that we could do like RPDB, which is Remote Python Debugger. Um, into Docker and everybody's like, yeah, I bet you could, you know, because you can do certain things with it. But, um, a lot of times what people do is they just shell into Docker and they set, uh, IPDB breakpoint and, uh, you know, run the application and then step through and debug it that way. So, um, yeah, Docker has its pluses and minuses, but you know, that seems to be one of those things. And we also had an issue of, um, like we're, we're using Docker to, to do our Postgres database as well. And they would build new database images. They would get pushed and we would pull them down and we would see like, Oh, look, Docker went and grabbed the latest image, but um, it wouldn't run or, or use the latest image, which was very strange. Um, you had to like go in and manually delete the image before Docker would be Docker would start using the the newest image, which was strange. Do you like, can you run that on your laptop or do you have to do it all like for testing and stuff or do you do it on a server? Uh, We run them all on our laptop. So we were given very, very large NVMe drives. (laughs) Mm. And um, yeah, we download all the Docker images and it's, you know, it, starts racking up gigs very, very quickly. So we pull them all down locally, have all the environments local, run them, fire them up and run testing and all that kind of stuff, hmm. uh, right on the, right on the laptop. But yeah. Have you used Docker yet? I have not. I... Yeah. 
yeah, I don't really have any uh, use case for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, setting up an application seems to be like the use case for it. They're like, oh, all these things that you would need to set up in an environment to run your application, you know, are taken care of, you know, makes deployment easy in a testing or CI environment. Deployment to production is the same thing. But in my opinion, as a developer tool, like it's it's a little bit like deferred pain. If I set up my local environment to run the application once, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I can run my debugging tools and I can do all this other kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, I can have a lot of access to a lot of things that Docker makes a little bit in- inconvenient to get to. Um, as a developer, I don't really care as much about the deployment to production, just that I want it consistent. Yeah. Um, but for me, being a Go guy, it's just a completely different problem scope. You know, I didn't come in kicking and screaming into this new job about it because I didn't really understand. And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the Python de- dependencies with the virtual environment. And then you install these dependencies and then you have to manage them all and all, all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, hey, go download a, an updated Docker image and you're done. And I was like, oh, that's that actually really makes a lot of sense but your hands are tied for other things that you might like to do. Yeah, I think for my use case, like most of my apps are just Rails apps, and then you just use Bundle, and it installs all the same versions of Gems and all that. Mm-hmm. So there isn't really much difference between my development environment and the servers. Um, but I guess it goes back to that like pets versus cattle thing, mm-hmm. where my servers are pets, so I they're all like one-off machines um i don't have like the cattle thing where i can just do a docker command or whatever and it like rebuilds my entire environment right but that's just i guess the way that i prefer to admin stuff yep and i don't use the the clouds 